Welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. I am, as always, very excited to have a wonderful guest. And this is someone I've actually not met in person, but, um, you know, do I ever need to meet people in person to get to know them? No, that's a cool thing about a podcast. We're going to get to know somebody together. And I am very, very excited because I think this is going to be a little bit different podcasts and what we've generally been doing. So I'd like to um, introduce to you Ikunga Wanadi uh, to you. And um, uh, Ikunga, can you introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, thanks, Garrett, for having me on, on the podcast. And hello to everyone, TNCN. Um, yes, I'm Ikunga Wanadi. I'm actually a psychiatrist working in, in Maryland. I work in a mental all psychiatric facility. Also do some kind of psychiatric research. So, but predominantly my clinical work is inpatient and I am also an Afrobeat poet. Wow. So because of, you know, the past guests that I've had, and so technically I should be calling you Dr. Wanady. So. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thank you. So, but we're not going to be talking about your role as a psychiatrist um, yet. We, We might get into that. I was actually interested in talking to you about um, Afrobeat poetry, which is fairly new to me. I think I've heard it before. Um, and since being introduced to you, I have listened to it, but I think I'd heard, I've heard it before, but didn't know it actually had a name and a genre and a history. So can you talk a little bit about your personal journey to become um, an Afrobeat poet and artist? Certainly. So I... I, I grew up, um, you know, reading lots of literature, you know, in medical school, and and just enjoyed, uh, always enjoyed literature and poetry. Read a lot of African writers' theories. My my late father happened to be a quite a celebrated poet when he was young in Nigeria, and and then I encountered the the beat poet movement and the likes of Gil Scott and and others and Lyndon Quasi Johnson. So that had an influence in the, the kind of poetry that I was more performing. So I was, a mem- I was a member of a band. When I was in college, we had this band called What? And we only played our own songs that were written by us with reggae. And there I experimented more with, with more like dub poetry initially. But eventually when I got to Lagos, I was introduced to, so I finished medical school, we, we had this one-year mandatory national service, and mine was in, in Lagos, where the originator of Afrobeat, Fela Kuti, resided. And a friend introduced me to um, a member of his son's band, Femi Kuti. And, and so that's when I really blended my evolving beat poetry style with, it was African, I was initially reggae, but, but, but by the time I met Dele Shosini and Femi Kuti, uh, the Africa Shrine, we, we fused it into Afrobeat. So that's where we, you know, it's in pidgin English, it has the Afrobeat call and response. And then in 2004, I got back together with David Shosemi. He has a huge Afrobeat orchestra band in the UK. And we um, released my, my first collection of Afrobeat poems. So it's really, I mean, and, and most of the CDs come with, with the lyrics as a the poet that could be read. Mm. When I was listening to some of your um, 
poetry and and I have to say poetry and music and it sounds weird to put the two together because to me music is poetry when it has lyrics I don't know I'm not I'm not a musician like that but that's the way I was kind of hearing it and and at first I thought oh this is going to remind me of hip-hop so I had sort of this um, image in mind but when I was actually listening to it it didn't remind me of hip-hop except maybe some of the messages being social-political possibly, but more it reminded me of um, actually spoken word. So how, like for listeners who may not be familiar with the sound itself, what sound would you equate it with for maybe things in the U.S. that people are familiar with? I hate to do that, but just to help people get there. The revolution will not be televised. <laughs> exactly. Yes. You know, if you, listen, I, if you listen to that track, if you listen to that track, um, that is a classic beat poem because it's a, it's a poem that's making a social statement and it has a good vibe and good groove to it. So you could dance to it if you wanted, or you could just listen, or you could do both. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. I have played that track. I don't know where I was. Oh, oh you know, a lot of meetings now happen in the virtual world. And sometimes we'll start the meeting by playing um, inspirational music that ties into, yeah, I would say a very social con um, context or consciousness. And so I recommended playing um, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised and nobody knew what it was. And I thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> so um, I had to like quickly pull it up on my phone and just put my phone next to the uh, microphone on my um, computer. And then when people heard it, they were like, whoa, what is that? That's amazing. Can you send that to us? So yeah, yeah. that's that's really a good analogy. So that's a good, I mean, and that was also, Gil Scott Heron was a, an influence of me growing up in, in Nigeria and experimenting with beat poetry. What, mm -hmm. what Afrobeat poetry that became was that spoken word with music designed for the spoken word. So we're not reciting a poem over a musical beat per se, but the music is created for the poem and especially has call and response and some singing too. That, that was what you know, Afrobeat poetry came to be. And Afrobeat itself you know, was founded by, and I know now these days we, we talk about Afrobeats and there's an, a Nigerian pop uh, scene that's grown international, you know, big stars, you know, Burner Boy, but we're talking about, I'm talking about Afrobeat, what Fela Kuti created. And he actually created that coming to the U.S. He was playing this, this blend of, of, of African music called High Life. And he, he met Sandra here in Los Angeles, encountered Malcolm X, and then infused a big band, you know, that James Brownian funk. So if you, when you listen to Afrobeat, it has a big band effect and call and response and it's in pigeon okay so what is pigeon pigeon is it's a broken english it's a in colonial post-colonial west africa it's like a creole so it's like a creole but it's it's a pigeon english so it's it's a broken english people could say i know they go which is i'm not going so that's what pigeon is it's like mass language for both literate and those who are not literate. 
So when I was listening to your album, let me see which one was I listening to. But when I was listening to your album, and I'll name it in a second, I was really struck by there was a familiarity. And then there was, okay, wait, this isn't terribly familiar. Wait, I got to go back and kind of really listen. And I think for me, the the, the pigeon, I had to really yeah. listen. But um, the familiarity right. was the horns. Um, and like when the horns would come in and then yeah. um, listening to the different drums. I don't know the names of all the drums, but it sounded like one of them is the one that you squeeze. Um, it has the strings and you squeeze right. it a little bit. So that drum has um, the talking, the, the talking yes, drum, the talking drum, very tonal. Right. And um, so I'm, I'm listening to these kind of different sounds come together. So um, again, you know, somewhat of a, the African talking drum next to the strong yeah. horns. It was like giving me all sorts of vibes. And I was like, oh, wait, 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 I need to listen to the words. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but I was really, really um, thinking about too how I think I was listening to uh, the bombs that had, has a, the, the social part to it. So can you talk a little bit about that too? Yes, so so Fela Kuti, so the Afrobeat itself was created by Fela uh, Kuti, who is late, and he he used it as a vehicle for change. So people talk about sometimes people say Fela Kuti was you know like the Bob Marley of Africa, and, and Afrobeat heads will say Bob Marley was the Fela Kuti of the West. So essentially, he used music to he uses Afrobeat to enlighten the masses. To, to stand up to military dictatorship at high cost over you know, about 20 years. And also just to get people to think about Africanism, Pan-Africanism, and, and those themes stand true in, in, in Afrobeat poetry. So the bombs is, is a play on you know, where the bombs made and where are the bombs being dropped. The bombs are being made in London of the bombing is in Togo. Again, the, the irony of what developing nations do with their revenue and where they buy weapons and where they use the weapons. Yeah, I, I was sort of imagining or picturing in my mind as you were reading the poetry and the lyrics, uh, that's exactly what I was imagining is that rich and economically rich countries, they're developing things that land in poorer countries. And like, what's up with that? So to, so to speak, you know, you had to interrogate that. Yes, yes. And, and other themes um, on that first CD, Go Slow. And Go Slow really speaks to mental health, mental illness, and, and access and to destigmatize de- de- mental illness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all the Afrobeat poems have a social, or at least they strive to have a social message. De Bombs was actually picked, oh, I'm blanking on his name, but it's a big producer in, in California. He picked it and used it as a soundtrack for a movie that was made on a young child soldier uh, that fled West Africa. Oh, did you expect that? Went, no, I didn't. <laughs> that's that's kind of cool. I mean, you know, it's it's sad, sad in a way, because there's music about things that are tough like that, but also right. that, you know, you're talking about those things and the music in, in your work being lifted up to get the message out even further. Yes, I was actually quite honored by that. Now, now when Apple rolled out iTunes in 2004, uh, there, was, there was this 
compilation called ASAP, the Afrobeat Sudan Aid Project. And the bombs was on that compilation. We all, several Afrobeat artists gave their tracks for free. So there were, there were free downloads on iTunes and it generated, we, we raised about $170,000 or so that was sent to benefit uh, victims of, of the war, you know, refugees in Sudan. And, and the bombs generated over 40% of, of the downloads. So that was you know, quite comforting and yeah. just humbling. Wow, wow. So how do you, um, what is your, your process like um, when you're thinking about, um, you know, what it is you're going to write either about, or um, I also be, was curious about the, the lyrics and then do you conceptualize the music that will go with the lyrics or do musicians hear your poetry and then come back to you with the music that would go with it? Or do you do it together? So. We, we do it together, but I get to a point where I would have worked on the poem, worked on how I conceive of the call and response, and basic things like the bass line. I'd have an idea of what the bass line would be. And but the horn session and all that is when I would go to the full producer, the musician, who would then score it. And there's some back and forth. You know, we have the fully created musical track, but with backing vocals. Mm. But initially I just do the writing with, with beats in my imagination. Oh. oh, I'm amazed by artistry, any kind of artistry. I'm just amazed at the ability for people to use creative skills to communicate things to people through that uh, creative artistry. So whether it's poetry, prose, you know, graphic arts, anything like that. I'm, I'm just always amazed by it. This is my artistry. I just like talking to people. So <laughs> there you go for me. But, um, you know, you were you were talking about um, Go Slow and how that has a um, tie-in to, to mental health. Can you, is it possible to give a few uh, lines from Go Slow? Are, are you allowed to read, say, talk? What's the right terminology I'm supposed to use? I know there's no music there, but uh, are there any are there any particular um, stanzas that really resonate with that particular piece of poetry that you can share with us? So I could say there's one sentence line that goes, this, this piece of earth underneath the old Iroko tree upon which numerous Hamatan leaves are shed. This dotty piece of sun upon which you and them they tread. This is my bed. Now my bed and that rock at the bottom of a tree. It has served as the pillow for my head. So it's, again, it's talking about a homeless, you know, so the poem is about this homeless individual who obviously has severe mental illness. And it's the Iroko tree, it's the Iroko tree is almost like a poplar. They grow very tall and live very long in, in West Africa. And, and they have symbolism as most, most big shrines are built at the roots, you know, at the base of an Iroko tree. Mm -hmm. So just saying that this, this Iroko tree for you is just a piece of sand where you walk, but for me, it's my bed and that rock at the bottom of the tree, it has served as a pillow for my head. My hair don't scatter. 
And sometimes my eyes, they're red. And when you see me, they chop from dustbin. Don't turn me on the fed. Wow. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and do, do most people understand the, um, that uh, you're talking about an unhoused person, a homeless person who is you know, living with mental illness? Do people yeah. understand that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you, um, well, if you understand Pigeon, or at least if you have the poem and read it, because it's some, like I did here, doing some just description. But for a Nigerian that understands Pigeon English, by the time they've gotten to the second verse, they know that this is a homeless individual with serious mental illness. Mm-hmm. My hair don't scatter, I'm like dreads or, you know, hair is unkempt. Mm-hmm. And my eyes are red. So the, the little pieces that keep dropping, tell them to leave me alone. Make them leave me alone. My flesh, it's just they manage to cover my bones. Make them leave me alone. Make them leave me alone like a turtle. I've learned to carry my own home. Mm. So you, you, it keeps on unfolding. You yes. know, this is someone who is, is unhoused mm-hmm. and living with mental illness. And how do you find the difference of how we talk about uh, homelessness and people who are unhoused? Do you find that's a, a global way of thinking about it or how people think about it in Nigeria? Is it different how we think about it and address it in the U.S.? It's similar in many ways because the, the drivers of unstable housing are economic, policy-based, and health-based. So if there's a fracture of the family and there's an illness in an individual, you know, there are people who, who have held jobs and then they come upon hard times and they lose a job and lose the ability to stay housed and become unhoused, they struggle and some get back into you know, the world of, of the house. However, there's a huge population, there's a huge segment of people with unstable housing that's driven by untreated mental illness. You know, when we say mental illness, we're talking about psychiatric disorders, substance use disorders, um, psychological sequelae of trauma. So in, in that regard, it's, it's similar. But the specific pressures in Nigeria that do not exist here will be, be the specific pressures of, of iniquities that are based on race. That might be different in different aspects. You know, between here and Nigeria, so as you see, it's a homeless. Here, there's an additional, there's an additional blow of encountering the social determinants of health, which is where people live, work, and play, and access health, and the forces that that are involved in in creating that inequity, and and um, the resilience and and being able to to overcome such a challenge again could be affected by how much social support there is, one's own risk factors. Yeah. And and most of my poems actually, most of my actually my my CDs all make donations to to um, organizations that that work towards destigmatizing mental illness. It runs in my family too, in mm. in Nigeria, back mm. there. So everyone thought, well, you made a distinction in surgery. You should become a surgeon. But I was more interested in 
in, in behavioral health and behavioral medicine. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what got me into the behavioral health field and, and to, to advocate for it. So, mm-hmm. so and, and other, my other CDs too, like the second one, which was Deep Sleep, I did with a group called Mr. Something Something in, in Canada, a very talented band. And, and, and that we, we, we really enjoyed that collaboration. We, mm-hmm. we talked about the poems there were the ones that focused on the effect of oil spills on the environment, which is what happens in the part of North Africa that I'm from. You know, the big oil companies and oil spills and the environmental degradation from that. And then, you know, some, some other themes. And, and so that CD called Deep Sleep came in at, at number one. So it was number one for seven weeks and was voted the best world music CD in Canada in that year, 2007. And then some other poems that I'd put in compilations. The, the most recent I've done is, well, it's, it's going to 70 years now, was Dibia. And, and Dibia is the third book of Afrobeat poems. And on that, actually, the Afrobeat poet, or ABP, as they call me, comes out and actually says, yes, I am a physician artist. It, it was not revealed in, in previous CDs. Yeah, um, this is really, really amazing. And how how has artistry for you, and, and, and this is how I also think about sort of um, artist and artistry and the creative process as impacting our health and well-being as individuals. So, um, you know, I do the podcast. I, I'm not, um, for the most part, there are a few episodes that are that are sponsored, but the majority of the podcast is unsponsored. I have a producer. I paid the producer out of my pocket. <laughs> um, I, you know, try to do this on my off time at work um, because this is sort of my artistry, if you will. And I love it. And yeah. it helps me feel, I don't know, there's a feeling I get out of it. Like, you know, the endorphins are going, I feel good. I feel happy. I look forward to the conversations. I can't wait to hear it, you know, edited and, you know, put out into the world. Um, so I know it, it's helping me in my own emotional um, well-being and hopefully helping other people if they listen. So what, what about the process for you? I, do you find, you know, maybe how it helps you sort of emotionally or just your well-being as a whole? I think it's, it's an emotional feedback when you have this creative idea and you can develop it and, and write it as a poet. Now, my, my father taught me or at least he, he put me in the frame of mind that no poet ever made money. So if you're a poet, you're just no, except he said, except T.S. Eliot. I'm sure there are more people from between then and now who have been commercially successful. But as a poet, you should enjoy the poetry and you should enjoy, hopefully, the, the message as it's received by the listener and the audience. So that emotional satisfaction of being able to write a poem, a beat poem with music and lyrics, backing vocals, and then have it received. And with an impact, it's rewarding. Like my second CD, Deep Sleep, that I did with the the Canadian uh, Mr. Something Something, yes, it was voted best world music CD, but a Japanese label picked that CD too. They liked it. And so they, they translated all my poems into Japanese. So they're Japanese kids 
kids downloading my beat poems in Japan. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. We couldn't do a tour because I, you know, actively doing research and working with the patients. But that's, you know, to know that it's having an impact, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's emotionally gratifying and humbling too. Mm. Wow, wow, that is quite amazing. So if we, um, as we get ready to, to wrap up, by the way, like having that translated into Japanese, I would love to hear it in Japanese. <laughs> like, oh, how yeah. does that, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's, really cool <laughs> again yeah, sort of blown so away yeah a week, week-long project because i think we're 12 or 18 hours apart and i, yeah. I would recite and have to this is pigeon if it was english they'll just find anyone yes. who speaks english but since it's pigeon english and there there's there's hidden meaning or or symbolism in in the pigeon they it was just best for them to have me in a word for word explain mm-hmm. for each poem on that whole album. And so that was a time consuming, interesting yeah. experience. But I believe we're about, I think we're about 12 or 14. I can't remember, some 16 hours different. Yeah, yeah. So that's a wonderful way to do it, though, right? Because yeah, then the translation, yeah. it's not like when we think of, even when we think of, uh, again, going back to, uh, you know, how we do our work in mental health um, or mm-hmm. um, when people think about accessibility and translation people are not thinking about the cultural part of language. They're thinking about like word for word. That's why Google yeah. Translate, no offense to Google Translate, no, you know, not saying anything, but sometimes that doesn't work yeah. because you need a, the cultural um, meaning right. to a sentence or the cultural context versus just like a word to word translation. So that's, that's very cool. Before we wrap up, um, I do ask uh, our um, guest, to and you drop lots of wisdom during this whole conversation, but um, I do ask uh, guests to do some wisdom dropping or to leave um, our listeners with sort of one piece of a nugget of information, wisdom that you would like the listeners to have before we wrap up. So, what would your wisdom dropping be? Wisdom dropping would be that the medical conditions can affect hearts, lungs, kidneys, bones. When they affect the brain, we talk about behavioral medical conditions of the brain, that they're equal opportunity conditions. And so if I'm going to check my blood pressure, I shouldn't feel stigmatized if I'm going to check on a symptom for my brain, which is really the most complex organ that we know. It has 100 billion neurons. So the wisdom would be, your mental health is at par with your physical health. The mental health and your emotional health is at par. So get involved to advocate for mental health access and your personal emotional well-being. And you can do this through NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. There are chapters everywhere in the United States. If you find someone who you feel might benefit from treatment, like I shy away from the word help. Because help is when there's, you know, if I fall down, you help me up. But if I'm having a medical condition, then you, can, you can help me access treatment. And NAMI does great work around this country. Please get involved. 
Right. Well, thank you very much. And I'm going to tell you a little secret that you did not know about me, but I used to be the president of the board of NAMI for two years, was on the oh. um, board for six years. Yes. <laughs> well, imagine that. Yeah, yeah, yeah imagine my, that. My I had CD, no idea. My CD sales go good. You know, I, I said a lot of support to NAMI. Oh, oh, wow. That's great. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Unapologetically Black Unicorns and sharing some of your poetry and your wisdom um, with us. I really, really appreciate it. I know you're really busy. And um, for our listeners, um, I just want to encourage our listeners to remember to subscribe. Why, why, why do I say that? Well, some, you know, subscribing helps um, the algorithms. Algorithms help people get the information. However, for me, the most important thing is that you're listening and sort of thinking about the things we're talking about and also sharing with other people. There's so many people who need to hear these great messages. So uh, most important, um, listen and share and join us next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thank you so much.